0: Please open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. Tonight we're going to talk about God's covenant, really with Noah, and, and creation, you and I as well. This wasn't, this wasn't, the Noah covenant wasn't something that was one time. It's a royal grant covenant, and I'll explain a little bit about that. And it's something that perpetuated since the very beginning all the time. It was a promise that God made not only to Noah, his sons, but to you and I, and to the animal kingdom as well, to all of creation as we read it. And so I'm going to read, and we'll do a responsive reading tonight. We'll go 1 through 20 here. Well, actually, we'll go 1 through 29, actually. Let's go through the whole passage. Yeah, we're going to aim high tonight. 1 through 29, through the whole thing. And I'll start with verse 1. You all start with verse 2, and we'll conclude together. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Surely, for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of every man, from the very hand of your man of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood. Shall be in God, he, he, and, and as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. And, and, him, saying, and as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations." I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be You guys are doing great. Hang in there. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went out of the dark were Shem, Ham, and Jacob. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah. And from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a the vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May Noah live after the flood 350 years. So all the days Noahs were 950 years, and he died. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you again uh, for your holy word, Lord, for such a perfect account and testimony, Lord Jesus, of how you hit the reset button, if you will, Lord God, you You wiped out all sin that existed, and God, you repopulated the earth, and you told Noah and his children to go forth and multiply. And God, we know that even our bloodline, Lord, all of us here, even tonight, all the world, Lord, we came from the inhabitants of that ark because everything else was destroyed. So God, thank you for preserving a remnant that we might even today have life, and that even more, Lord Jesus, through your Son, we have life more abundantly. God, I pray that tonight we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, as we, as we look at so many different things, Lord, here tonight, one being sin in the new world, Lord, that you, you created perfect again, and how that breaks your heart, Lord, drunkenness. But, Lord, your love and compassion. God, bless us and keep us here in your holy name. Amen. All right, let's go back to chapter one. Turn the page. That was a pretty long passage. There is something wonderful when a church literally puts the word of God and we can all hear it. It puts it into the air, I call it, where it's going out. It's the seed. And it's beautiful because it's in unity. And it's, you, know, you don't have to worry about somebody's over here. It's beautiful. And there for a pastor, there's nothing like it. I sit up here and I hear the word being read. And I'm like, Lord, where's the trump? We're ready to go home. I'm ready. Let's do the rapture. Let's go on the rapture program, you know. It's so beautiful. And, um, you know, tonight as we look at God's covenant with Noah and his creation, you and I, it's all about the promises of God. God's been teaching us a lot about that lately. You know, we were in Mark last, uh, just this last Sunday, and we looked at the promises, even before that, the Sunday before, crossing over to see Sea of Galilee, trusting God, having faith, believing in those promises in chapter 4, and then which led into chapter 5. See, God's really reinforcing that uh, as, as a church for us as a body at this time because he's connecting these passages only, only he can through the Holy Spirit. So if we look here in verse 1, it said, So God blessed Noah and his sons. And, and surely there's no doubt of that. They were blessed. And he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Underline that. Very, very important. This is going to be a key verse when we get to chapter 11 and we look at the Tower of Babel and we look at the sin of Nimrod. And we start to understand why, why was this judgment? Why was God upset? What was the sin? What was the motivation of the heart? Because we read right here in chapter 9, verse 1, that he blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And what are they to do? Are they to congregate in one area? What's our Bible say? They were to fill the earth, spread out, right? That's what they were to do. That's what God had commanded. He, he said, this is what you're to do. So he gave him a command to repopulate the earth. And it's interesting, this is the same instruction that if we remember back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, who did he give this command to as well? Adam, right? Adam and Eve. That's exactly right. So we see God, once again, blessing. He kind of hit the reset button, right? He hit the reset button. He did, you know, the flood came. It was a worldwide flood. He said he's not going to flood. He's going to make a covenant. He'll never do that again for all judgment. But he wants us to pay attention to here. He wants us to see why he did it. He didn't just destroy it. He destroyed it to wipe out the wickedness, the evil. And in Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to talk a little bit about it, Jesus' words, he said at the end times, it would be just like this. It would be the days of Noah. And so we can't help but in chapter 9 to start to look at what are the days of Noah begin to look like? And then we're going to see it in chapter 10 and 11. Now, some of that was even before that, remember, before the flood. That's when we really think of the days of Noah, before the flood actually came. But look at even afterwards. Sin still prevails, but God's righteousness much more. And so, as we look at this in this brand new world, I mean, think about Noah. He walks out of this ark. Everything's changed fundamentally. I mean, everything that he would have understood... Is, is fundamentally changed. I mean, he's no longer protected by that canopy of the water vapor. That I mean, he comes out and... Where's home? I mean, what's home anymore? I mean, he used to see all the land and all the animals and everything that's going on, and now there's a, a fraction of that. You know, the first thing he probably did, and well, we know actually what he did. What did it tell us in chapter 8, verse 20? What's the first thing Noah did? He, he set an altar up. He went to church. The first thing Noah did when he got out of the ark is he did worship. He worshiped God. It's a good lesson for you and I. The first thing we do in the morning, when our eyes open, praise Jesus. Praise his holy name, for he's worthy. It should be natural. It's the very first thing Noah did, because when he was on that boat, he quickly remembered what the waves, the seas were like. I mean, again, the whole world was covered with water. And I'm sure when he got off, you know, the joke, he got down and kissed the ground, oh, you know, Lord, I'm out of the ark. But I have no doubt he was he was thankful because his wife, his children, and their wives were all alive. And God preserved them on that boat, on that ark. So what did Noah have to do? He's got to come out. And what's the first thing he's thinking about? Anybody ever uh, go camping? You go into the woods. You go in. Well, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to set up camp. You want to, div- you want to set up shelter. You want to think about heat, you know, campfire. What are you going to do? Provisions? Noah didn't have any of this. I mean, it had just you know, it just basically flooded and then it drained quickly. The Bible tells us it was very quick, if you remember, we went through that in the Hebrew. It's draining quick, kind of almost like a, a suction kind of drain. So things are, the, the soil's probably very fertile, but there's no, there's no vineyard yet. He's going to plant a vineyard. There's, there's no crops. Oh, I'm just going to go down here to the supermarket, right? The, the, you know, my acre of land and pick my tomatoes. There's none of that. I think we sometimes forget that, that God, is he, he brought Noah through this, when he came out of that ark, it wasn't what he thought it was going to be. When God brings us through circumstances, sometimes we have a predisposition of what things are going to be. Maybe, maybe a way we envision it. And then when we open the door and we're like, whoa, this is not part of my plan. But maybe it's part of God's. And maybe there's, there's something he's trying to teach us, like leaning on him for strength. Because I'll tell you what, Noah had to lean on God, didn't he? He didn't have any other provisioned. There was no other provisions there. There was an ark that was sitting probably crooked on the top of a mountain. He got out and came down, probably saw a cave. Well, that's home right now. there's no other provisions. Fire, you know. Remember, half of the animals, because he took one-third of the animals and he sacrificed them on the altar, so the the other two-thirds, were they're out. They're gone, man. They're running off, and he's like, there went dinner. I mean, you know, and he probably didn't even think about dinner because he hadn't even received the the command from God that he could eat meat because he was a vegetarian before that. Only green herbs. So, I mean, I just, I want us to think in the context, everything Noah was seeing and thinking and how our circumstances can feel like that. We're going through trials or tribulations, things that just feel like, Lord, this is foreign to me. I've never seen this before. I've never experienced this. It's overwhelming me. Am I going to be okay? Is my family going to be okay? And God's promises are true. And just as he preserved and sustained Noah and his family, he's going to do that for you and I. it's a good typology here for us to look back to, to God's promises. I mean, you think about, there was no climate control anymore. Remember that? Um, you know, food and water, harvesting, hunting. No tools. No, no bow and arrow. No gun. I'm just going to go grab my rifle to go hunt. Nothing that didn't exist. You know, you ever try to catch a deer going, you know, 15 miles an hour, you know, without any type of tool, right? I mean, think about it. And people yet say, I wonder if they were smart back then. They were brilliant. There was no Neanderthal man, no caveman that comes out, you know, the commercials, the Geico commercials, oh, you know, like, we're wrecked from TV. The Geico commercial. oh, what do you mean? No, brilliance people were brilliant. They were able to uh, something out of nothing as God created bara in the Hebrew. He created something out of nothing. They took that something that he created and they were able to create what? Pottery? Something to hold water in so they could sustain life? Food? Plates? Salting? Figuring out that if you take salt and use it as a preservative it'll keep the meat? I mean think about this. There was there's no manual that way. It was the hand of God that preserved them. And he does it for you and I. That's why he doesn't want us to grow faint of heart. Very busy. So I imagine this first week Noah got off that ark, he was him and his wife and the kids and every. I mean, they're crazy busy. I'm sure they're not thinking about anything else. They're worshiping God and they're going, okay, Lord, how do we unpack and set up camp here? Let's look at verse two. And it says, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth. Now I imagine Noah's going, what do you mean? Think about that. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the air and all that move on the earth. And on all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. What does that mean? That means Noah's going to become a hunter. He's going to hunt. He never hunted before. There was no fear in animals. Before this, before the flood, animals and, 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 and humankind that way, they kind of, Coexisted somehow, it implies it, that, that now there's going to be a fear that God is going to somehow set up a provision for, for protection for these animals to know that when they see, man, there should be a a, a natural feel to stay away. You know, I, other than maybe the domesticated animals we have in our lives, if, if you see a deer, if you see something and you move in the woods, what does that thing do? Boom! Takes off, right? It doesn't go, oh, there's the guy that's going to give me some pepperoni. No. He's gone, right? There, He's gone. He's off. Right? Well, where did that come from, that instinct? God tells us right in his word here. He put that into the animals for their protection. He gave them a healthy fear of mankind. And God basically tells Noah that they're going to have fear. And it makes you wonder again, like I said, you know, what was it like before that? Did the animals come up and maybe come alongside humankind that way before. We know it'll sort of be like that in heaven if they're, you know, the animals. We know the lion will lay down with, you know, lamb and things like that. We know that'll exist. So we see it here. But now, what do we see? Beef, chicken, right? Fish, pork, venison. We think a soup's on. Meat's on. Meat's on. I mean, you know, this word in the, the Hebrew here is terror. That's the actual word. When it says a fear, it actually, it's hoth in the Hebrew. It means terror. They had a terror of humanity. If you're taking notes, underline that. I mean, that's, this isn't just a, a fear. I mean, this is an ultimate terror that when they would see a human, they would immediately need to flee like that. You see, man is still the dominant creature in God's creation. You know, animals are part of, obviously, God's creation that way, but he's given them into the hands. It says it's given into the hands. And I think of the people of save the whales, the rhinos, the kittens, you know, (laughs) all the things we see on the TV. And those are all good things. Save the animals. I mean, you know, there was a recent commercial where it's like, come on out. It's like a car commercial. I don't know. They make these. And go save the rhinos. Okay, go save this. Go save that. And Next thing you know, you know, they're out and then the whale comes and, you know, she goes flying against the ship. I'm wrecked by tea. The camera comes down and I sat there and I'm thinking to myself, yet how many abortions occur a year? How many baby, babies are murdered? You know, who, who's protecting their lives? Everybody wants to stand up and say, let's protect the kittens. But what about human life? Because God said that we were created in the likeness and image of God. That's why we've been given the intellect we have. We're given three things, what? A body, soul, and spirit, right? The animals don't have all three. They got a body, they got a soul, but they don't have a spirit. We don't read about animals getting saved and going to heaven, do we? Right? It's a body and soul. It's different. They're a different part of creation. And so as we look at this, it's, it's something that Adam was reminded, or I mean no, excuse me, Noah was reminded, that, that we're to value human life even over animal life. Do we understand that? Do we understand that? Look at verse 3. And it says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. So, just as Adam had received instructions for eating, Genesis chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, and chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, so does Noah. But Noah's given specific permission that Adam wasn't given. Noah was given permission to eat meat, right? We see that, to eat animals like that. Living, clean animals, right? We see that. So meat's on the menu. So anybody that's, you know, going back, and sometimes there's these cults that start start up again, and they, oh, we, we, you know, we want to live like they did in the Bible, and we, we want to go back, you know. The vegetarians, you know, if you look in the first 2,000 years or the time of Jesus, no. Actually, our scriptures tell us that during the days of Adam, In the garden, certainly they were vegetarian. But afterwards, God said, it's permissible for you to eat meat. God's given it to us for sustenance, for food. And aren't you glad he did? (laughs) Praise the Lord. I'm just thinking of. it. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. That's awesome. So, when you think about it, for 371 days, it's something that the Lord sort of put in my mind. and And it actually goes, and it's interesting in the Hebrew when we think of the Passover, the lamb. Hebrew context and the way they would do it is the lamb that would be sacrificed was to be without blemish. But that lamb would do what? Does anybody know the Hebrew tradition? That lamb would come into the house a week or two before that sacrifice was going to occur. That way the family that was going to sacrifice that lamb understood they got to know Fluffy. You know, they got to look at him. They got to build relationship with Fluffy, right? And, and they realized that that sacrifice cost something. That this wasn't just some, some life that was just... But this life had value. God's creation. And that, and that this, the blood of this animal had to be sacrificed for the sin and the, you know, the atonement that would be passed, right? For a sin offering, a wave offering, all the different things that God had created in Leviticus and the law. And so when you look at this, here Adam was with the very animals that one day he would hunt he spent over 371 days with them in an ark. Again, a third of them he sacrificed immediately, but then the others, he would eventually go, and everything would be different, because in the ark, they would coexist. They would lay down, everything worked out. He's like, hey, what's up, Fluffy? You know, things are good. You know, even probably some domestication there with the animals taking care, Adam taking care, or I keep saying Adam, excuse me, Noah taking care of the animals that way. But now, all of a sudden, things are going to be forever different hunting and fear that way, terror, Hoth in the Hebrew. And, you know, I can't imagine how that was for Adam, or Noah, excuse me, because his heart, he, he took care of these animals, and now he was going to have to kill them to eat them. And I'm sure that mattered a lot to him because of the compassion he had for these animals that he was caring for. Right? I mean, you with me? I mean, this, It matters. It matters. Look at verse 4. He says, but you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So God also commands Noah that if animals are to be eaten, then there should be a proper respect for the blood. That's what we see here. And why? Because if we look at Leviticus, turn in in your Bibles. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 17. Now granted, at this time, there's not the law. We understand the law hasn't been given to Moses. This is pre-law. Why is that also important? Because people will say, well, I'm not under the law anymore. Well, great, because this isn't law. This is pre-law at this point. Leviticus is law. It's ceremonial law. But when, I, when we're talking to Noah and we were just in Genesis chapter 9, we're pre-law. So look at Leviticus chapter 17 and we're going to look at verse 11. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. It tells us, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes The atonement for the soul. It's not the skin of the animal. It's not the meat of the animal. What is it? The blood. What did Jesus say? The life is in the blood. And Jesus Christ, on that cross, what was shed for you and I? His blood. For the new covenant. Past, present, and future. All sin done away with. Because the love of Jesus Christ. Because the life is in the blood. Look at verse 14. For in its life of the flesh, its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh for the life for the life of all the flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. God was pretty strict about this. You're not to eat blood. Those that like steak tartare no. I'm not going to trip the law on you. I mean, I'm just having fun with you a little bit. But the point is, is that life is in the blood. And, and what, is, what is he trying to tell us about this here? First of all, in the Bible, in the King James Version, over 361 times, 295 specific references to blood in separate verses in the King James Version. It means a lot to God when He's talking about it and He's speaking about the blood and then Jesus Christ coming and His shed blood. It was always an example of what it would be for our Messiah when He came and that the life was in the blood and that through that blood we have an ushered in a new covenant. We received His imputed righteousness. Through what? Through the blood. Through the blood. You see, he's given it to us. So again, no more tartar, and this is even before the ceremonial law. Why is, it, why is it a bigger issue? Because just like a lot of things we shouldn't do that we might want to rebel against God, I don't want, I, I like this, I like that, right? Well, it's interesting. If you talk to a doctor, you know, and, and you ask them, hey, is blood toxic? They would say, absolutely. There's a lot of pathogens in the blood. For example, viruses, bacteria, um, blood-borne diseases, not to mention that if you actually had a large content of blood, you can actually overdose on iron, believe it or not, on iron. See, God was protecting them because if, if Noah, remember, had never eaten meat before, had never you know hunted like that, this is all new, and he's telling them don't eat the blood because in the blood there's the bacteria, there's the viruses, all these things, blood pathogens. And to Noah or to somebody else that came later, they might go, well, that's legalistic, brother. Why are you telling me I can't... Look, it's not, it's, you're not, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with the Lord. What the Lord's trying to say is that I'm protecting you. I understand how all this works. You, you may not understand it all yet. Your doctors haven't caught up with what I've designed, and there's a reason. Just like there's reasons he says there should be one man and one woman in marriage. There's a reason that God has designed it that way. There's a reason he said don't manipulate DNA. You know? Don't go through and start changing and manipulating organisms just because you think you have the knowledge and the capability to do so. Recently, China just announced, and I I mentioned this in our men's time on Saturday, our our men sharpening ironing time. China just recently, I don't know if you saw the article, they came out with the ability because they, it started well good. The, The idea was, well, there's people that have diabetes, other diseases, and if we could figure out how to go in to an embryo and we could craft or manipulate the chromosome, we could turn around and we could maybe li- lessen the likelihood that someone would develop these debilitating diseases. All seems well and good. The problem is it was only a 10% efficiency or effectiveness rate. It really wasn't working well. Well, then they started manipulating more because, again, in China it's a little different. It's communists. Obviously, they don't have the same you know, FDA or the same boards or measures that we do around human you know, ethics and things like that. So they turned around and said, you know what? We're going to take this one step further. Over- what if we did it on a perfectly healthy embryo? And what if we turned around and we did it through a surrogate? What if we did it through in vitro fertilization? So that way we don't have to deal with the people or manipulating the baby while it's in the womb. We'll just do it through the, you know, right through the in vitro and we'll go through and we'll see what happens. And so they actually found out there's closer to a 60 or 70 percent success rate. But as they started manipulating this, what happened? Well, they started realizing, wow, we can change eye color pretty easily. So, if you want a male, you know, a male order baby, excuse me for being so direct about it, but that's really what they're describing. You can have a brown, you know, brown eyed or blue eyed. Uh, because China is so big on reputation, reputation is very big as a part of that culture. And if you look at it, family of origin, like if you don't chain or receive a certain level, sometimes they could turn around and say, you've brought dishonor to your family. Certain Asian populations are like that too and so one of the things that came out about this is they turned around and said well why not increase memory or aptitude? I mean if we're going in there, right, and it's, it is for the good, right, you see where the, you see where's the line? It is for the good, so they begin to manipulate this and and after a while you start to read this article and you start going oh my, where, where is that line? So now we're going to create superhuman strength, we're going to turn around and manipulate it to create superhuman ability, Right? Mentally. Mental aptitude. Memory enhancements. I mean, we already see people go in and there's, there's tons of supplements that can help you boost your memory, right? For competition, so you're competing for jobs and all this stuff's already out there, but it's kind of like a supplement. Now they're talking about just going in and manipulating the embryo. I mean, does every, is everybody in an uproar? I mean, do you guys tracking with me? And then I couldn't help, but the Lord brought me back and he said, but I told you it would be like the days of Noah. And what was the last straw that broke the camel's back. It was the Nephilim. It was when they came in and you had the angels, right, fallen angels, demonic angels, that began to have relationship with the earthly women, right, the Nephilim. And they were the giants. That was the term, the giants. And there was, you know, the super power, superhuman strength. And God said the wickedness, no, because he knew that demonically and what the devil was trying to do was prevent the seed that we read about in Genesis 2.15, the seed from going forward, which would eventually be who? Jesus Christ. And he knew that. So God says, no, I'm going to destroy the whole world, hence the worldwide flood. And here we are, thousands of years later. The devil doesn't come up with new tricks. It's the same old, nothing new when the son of Solomon would say. The same old tricks. And what he's doing is now he's trying to create that superhuman again. That super idea. Now, who knows if it'll go to the same degree? I I don't know. But when I see that stuff and I hear Jesus saying it'll be like the days of Noah, I really do take account, wow, we really are living in the end times. We are living in days that I don't think any... 25, 30 years ago, we didn't even have technology to do this. Do you realize 40 years ago, we didn't even have the TV. We didn't even have the ability to... to, to, The things we read in Revelation where the two prophets are going to be seen all over the world and being able to watch. We didn't have any of that. We are living in such an interesting time like no other. And so as we... You know, getting back and reading this, it's, to me it's, it's evident that what God is saying so clearly here is listen to my promises, listen to my word. Be wise as serpents, right? But gentle as doves, just as he said. Be wise, Christian. Look at the signs. Know the times you're living were without excuse. Just as you would look at the weather and know if it's going to be a cloudy, rainy day. He, he told us these things. And we're seeing them happen before our eyes. Let's look at verse 5. He tells us Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of a man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. He reminds him one more time, right? bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So here as we read this, we see that God gives the man the, the right to man, not only the right, but the responsibility of what we would call capital punishment. And this is a very, I know this is a difficult passage for some, some people here tonight because some of you are going, well, pastor, is capital, capital punishment biblical? Well, we read that passage again here. It says, from the hand of every beast, I will require, you know, In other words, God does not condone condone unlawful killing of any kind, right? He's he's not saying, well, it's okay for these people. No, no, no. Any kind, he says, it's unlawful. He says, surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. According to God's command, when man's blood is shed, there must be an accounting for it. Life is precious in God's eyes. That's why that unborn baby is precious in God's eyes it must be an accounting for it. Because in the image of what? God, he made man. Because man is in the image of God, his his life is inherently precious and cannot be taken without giving God an account for it. That's what we see here. It says, by man his blood shall be shed. That means that because life is valuable, when murder is committed, the death penalty is confirmed. That's what God is saying here in his word. That when murder is committed, the death penalty is confirmed. So you might be thinking, well, whoa, what about, what about some distinction or differences here? And, and God does explain that because there is a difference between killing and murder, right? I think most of us get that, but there is a difference between killing and murder. He's saying not all killing is murder, right? Because there are cases when there's a just cause for killing. For example, self-defense, right? God's called us to defend ourselves, right? So, so capital punishment without due process. We have laws of the land. We have due process. If somebody's accused of something, there should be due process to make sure this person's life is rightfully being, you know, ended. Right? We don't just kill somebody because we hear a rumor of it. Right? What about killing in a just war? When, when our troops go and they go into other lands where they're, they're murdering other people and and, and our soldiers have to take a life to, to protect the safety of those living there or, or even protect the life here. You see, we got to talk about these things. These are not popular things. You, you can go into many churches and it'll never come up. It'll never, ever come up. But we, we, if the Word of God talks about it, we have to talk about it. And there's other, there's other instances where killing is, is uh, accidental, right? I mean, God built what? Cities of... Refuge. You remember that? Cities of refuge through the Bible. Levitical cities. That people could go that if somebody was accused and until that trial had occurred, they could go there as a, as a safe harbor, a protection. Today, you know what a city of refuge is today? The church. The church is a city of refuge. Maybe not in the same way of murder and killing, but think of all the sin and all the things that are going on out there. You can come into a place that it's safe and place yourself under the word of God and begin to get your mind renewed. Because after a while, you can, you can begin to assimilate out there. You could start to go, wow, is, is, is my ideas, am I off? Right? I mean, we, we can. And we need to be renewed in the Word of God. And the Bible also consistently teaches that punishment is really the guilty, is the role, excuse me, of human government. Look at, let's look at it. Turn in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Let's open in our Bibles to Romans chapter 13. See, God's got it all here for us. We we've studied assure ourselves approved. And I know I know this is a difficult subject for for many people here tonight, but it's good to know what God says about it because that forms our opinions, doesn't it? We we we're not to you know, we're not to go and do what's right in our own eyes, but we're we're to follow after Jesus Christ and what he says. Hence why we go by the term disciple or or Christian. We're 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 a follower of Christ, which means we're We're living according to God's plan and will. So if you look in Romans chapter 13, and let's look at verses 1-4, it says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from who? God. God. God is in control of everything. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, sometimes that's difficult. You could have past presidents, you could have past religious uh, leaders, you could have a lot of things, and you're sitting there going, Lord, that's who you gave us? You know, I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar, and I think the Babylonian invasion in 586 B.C., I'm sure Israel wasn't going, what's happening here? You know, they were probably wrecked. I mean, they were wrecked. Children, women, being, dr- you know, dragged away. Many of them murdered, but many of them dragged away to, you know, to this, to this Babylon, to this area out of their home and. And they must have been thinking, Lord, wh- where is your mercy? Where is your love in this? But God also told us, for whom the, love, the Lord loves, he corrects. And he had constantly been telling Israel, stop sinning, stop sinning. It hadn't gotten so bad that it was going up to the priests that they were even having orgies, things like that, in the temple. I mean, it was getting that defiled. And so out of God's love and mercy, what did he do? He brought judgment. But it was out of Love. And Nebuchadnezzar was a tool that God used to bring that correction. And it's it's hard for us to understand that sometimes because we can't see it all. Therefore, in verse 2, it says, Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For the rulers are not a terror to uh, to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For as he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to what? Execute wrath on him who practices evil. So if someone goes out and murders someone else, the governing authorities have a responsibility to execute the judgment and wrath of God on that person. And that's what the Bible teaches. That's what we see in this passage. Now remember, this is before the law. This isn't, hey, we're living in, you know, the law and now we're under grace and no longer. No, no, no. This is pre-law. This was God's design. And then he tells them again, Right at the end of that, he brings it back around, because you can imagine Noah's going, where's that coming from? Who murdered who? I mean, we just got off the ark, Lord. I mean, he's gosh, we didn't even do anything yet, Lord, and you're already talking to us about capital punishment. I mean, can you imagine Noah's probably caught off guard by that? Right. And then what does he turn around and do? He says, well, just second time here, be fruitful and multiply. It, it might seem odd that it's repeated, but God obviously believed here it needed emphasis, Almost like God was saying, I'm telling you all this, but don't lose sight of the command I'm giving you. And isn't it interesting, two chapters later, less than 100 years, we're going to find ourselves at a Tower of Babel where they're already disobeying God after such a short period of time when he just, you know, reset the button here for earth. Let's look at verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons, With him, saying, And as for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature, that is, with the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all you to go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. That's our covenant too. God has made that covenant with us as well. Do you see that? He says, I established my covenant. Covenant made with mankind, all of us. Even with the animals, it says, every living creature that is with you. And God promised that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. Or he would even cover the earth with a flood. And this is what we call a royal grant covenant because there's nothing required on our end to help fulfill this covenant. It's not a Susan Vastral covenant. A Susan Vastral covenant in scripture is where I have an end to keep, God has an end to keep, and as long as I keep my end, God keeps his end. Right? That's not what this is teaching. This is a Noah covenant is a royal grant covenant. God established it and there's nothing we have to do to keep. He's done it all. And praise him for that. Yeah. And like I said, he said, there will never be a flood. Never again there shall be a flood to destroy the earth. And he made the promise because in the post-world or the post-flood, God took steps like what? Remember, he imprisoned the angels. Remember the, the fallen angels who had sinned? We read about that in Jude 6. Jude verse 6 tells us that. What else did he do? There's something else that's very different that we see after the flood. We experience it today. I don't know of anybody alive 950 years. 800 years, 700 years, 600 years, 500 years. What else did God do? He shortened the lifespan. Do you see that? Two main things that God did. He shortened lifespan. Why? Because he knows the wickedness of man's heart. And by shortening the lifespan, he knew that there wouldn't be this time to plot and plan and ploy. I mean, we live 100 years if that, right? Some maybe 120 if that. And look at the wickedness that we see in the world today with such short of light. Can you imagine if people lived 900 years? Oh, my. Oh, my. You see, the world, I think this would guarantee here, excuse me, that the exact evil conditions of the pre-flood would never be precisely duplicated again. It can't be. God stopped that from being duplicated. However, as we read in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, and this is a very important passage, I encourage you to go back over and over again, keep reading that passage, because look up your redemption is drawing, drawing near or nigh. We're told that when things again become similar, he didn't say it would be exact. He said Jesus said similar his word to the to the days that Noah, then God would do what? He would destroy the earth by a flood by fire that's right not by a flood look at second peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 turn in your bibles to second peter second peter chapter 3 Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up pure minds by the way of a reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before and by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. You see, that's what would happen. People would go back and look at the beginning of creation and say, Jesus isn't coming back. That's, that's a myth. That, that's, they're scoffers. You, you believe that? And aren't we living in a day with scoffers? We had a lot of scoffers. A lot of philo- philo- <laughs> I like to say a lot of philosophies are philosophical uh, ideas. Atheism. It's a philosophy. It's not a religion. Right. For this they will willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and that the earth standing out of water and in water again reminding us of the flood by which the world that then existed perished being flooded by water or with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire. That's how we know. Until the day of judgment and perdition of fire. Ungodly men. Ungodly men. So God tells us that, that the next judgment will in fact come, but it will be of fire, not, not, of, not of a flood again. Not of a flood. Not of a worldwide flood. We will see localized floods, and we have, haven't we? But, but not a worldwide flood like that, and that's what, that's what God is showing us here. look at verse 13, it says, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for me a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all the flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature, of all the flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh on the earth. Isn't this amazing? That God would set such a sign, such an image for us, for all of humanity, that, that we would have this rainbow in the cloud. You think about it. Because the blanket of, of water vapor was there previously before the flood, and now we have this new water cycle that, that is on earth today, changed after the flood, I wonder if this is the first time Noah ever saw a rainbow. Can you imagine the first time he saw how... Be- Many of us, do you remember the first time you saw a beautiful rainbow? How it just captivated you? I mean, you, wow, look at the arrays of the color spectrum. And the, I mean, you know, and it, you, all the way to one side. And I have this beautiful picture of my bride my wife, standing in, in a field area, and she's overlooking it, and the rainbow's coming. And she's, I think she was, um, she was due with, uh, our, our th- I think it was Logan. She was due with our third child. And she's standing there, and she's got, you know, she's got the mommy belly. You know, she's due maybe in a month or two kind of thing. And I remember the rainbow coming down, and it was coming like, right to the belly. Like, and I got the picture of it. And you look at it, and it looks so cool, just God's promise. And then I got my bride there. I was sitting there like, this is beautiful, right? It's awesome. And I'm looking at that, and I'm like, but, but what is this about? This is a promise, and Noah had never seen that, I imagine. He didn't know what a rainbow was, and he was like, wow. I mean, it's breathtaking. And it's a sign to all generations of a faithful covenant. Now, if you think about it, it was an everlasting covenant, which is why we still see that rainbow today. He gives us that sign, don't we? After it rains, we, we see the rainbow, and we know that that, it, that speaks to God's glory also. Everywhere else throughout Scripture where we see this rainbow or the idea of a rainbow, it has everything to do with the glory of God. If you want passages, look at Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28 is an example. Or, or Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. Remember in Revelation we read about the, the bow? Chapter 10, verse 1 in Revelation? You see, it's awesome to see God in His glory like that. And that's what we should think about when we look at rainbows. We shouldn't just go, oh, it's a nice rainbow, but it's God drawing close to man in his promise, his perpetual covenant with you and I, and a a reminiscence of his glory. And he's pressing into that. And it's a constant reminder of his his promises, his faithfulness for you and I. I mean, we, we talked about it when we were in Revelation that you know in the throne room of God, was the green emerald bow. But we know that word in the Greek was different, right? It was, it was, do you remember it? Iris or Iris in the Greek. And when we read that Iris in the Greek, that was a, that, the idea of what that connotes in the Greek was a bow that goes completely around. So in the throne room of God, which Revelation chapter 4 talks about, which is what it's like when John was raptured up, if you will, and he's in the throne room of God. He's seeing this vision, and it's unfolding before him. And he's looking at this green emerald bow, speaking to his glory, and God has a perpetual reminder in heaven also that to remind him not that he would never bring that judgment again, but to also remind him of his promises, his faithfulness, his love and compassion for you and I, his creation, his children, as born-again believers in Jesus Christ. It's amazing. I mean, we take some of this for granted, but, but it's spectacular. It's amazing. And, and yet, we also have to be Mindful that there's another group that's decided to take that rainbow. Something that God had designed for purity. You know, I think of the LGBT organization and, and people like that, that that basically took it as a symbol of abomination or wickedness. I mean, that, that's really what that is. It's, it's sexually immoral. It's an abomination. And, and, and it says that, that, what? That we, to me, it takes a very simple meaning in that what we would define what God has given us as a promise or a covenant, we see it now being defined as a fa- something fake, a thing that's not genuine, um, something that's a forgery or a sham. It's, it's a copy of something. And, and, and is, is the copy ever as good as the original? No. Nor are the promises or faithfulness. Now, I'm not saying we don't love people that are homosexual, right? We do. Because we lo- I'll tell you what, if we don't love them and teach them about the glory of God, who will? We were all lost and dead in our trespasses, weren't we? We were sinners and somebody loved us and they gave the gospel to us and we received Jesus Christ. So we don't turn around and push people like that away. We just don't condone the sin. We know it's an abomination. But we know that inside that person is a heart that God desires, a soul and a spirit that he wants to see in eternity. And we have the privilege, the privilege to love on them the privilege to give them the good news that whatever's going on, that whatever you're seeking, wherever you're trying to fit in, whatever's, you don't have to do that. God created you perfectly just the way you are. You don't have to change your gender. You don't have to do any of these other things to feel like you now fit in because I'll tell you what, you won't. You can go through those operations. You go that the the higher suicide rates. The statistics are all showing it, proving it out. Rest in Jesus Christ same thing we need to do, rest in Jesus Christ. No one's arrived. We have the same, the same God, the same compassion, the same love. And so, you know, to me it was interesting that you know, we just, we just do re- need to realize that it's the idea of when we see something like an antichrist, we have Jesus Christ and then the antichrist is demonic in nature. It's a forgery, it's a sham of the real thing. The unholy trinity as we read in Revelation, right? The false prophet or false witness, right? We've got God, right? right, Which is Satan. He, he th- thinks he's God. And then we've got the Antichrist, which is like Jesus. Do you see? It's, it's a copy. It's always a copy. It's a forgery. It's a sham. It's the same thing. He takes the, the images, the, the covenants that God has designed for you and I, and he, he, Satan takes it and manipulates it, and, and, and it's a sham. It's a fake. And I think here it's a, it's a, it's, it's a good reminder. It's demonic. It really is demonic. We need to call it for what it is. It's demonic. But again, there are people that have been demon possessed, aren't there? We just read about it in Mark chapter 5, that man. And when Jesus Christ did what? Rebuked that demon, says, okay, you go into the swine like that. That man was made whole. He sat there, they came in and saw him, and they were like, They were more afraid because that man had his right mind than when he was demonically possessed. What's my point? My point is, Christian, we're not to run from anyone that way. If there's someone in the need of the love of Christ, it's our responsibility to to turn around and say, Here, Jesus loves you. Here's what his word says. You you have to understand what the word teaches. You know, we can't condone the sin, we can't compromise. But we love, we love the heart. We love the soul of the person, the spirit. So if we look at verse 18 and verse 19, we're winding down on our time here. It says, Now the sons of Noah went out with the ark with Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. Love it. One bloodline. We see that? No racism. No division. One bloodline. So where does this race, racism, and all this other stuff come from? It's demonic. It's division. Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit's unity. When we see disunity, it's never the work of Christ that way. So that's why, to me, it's, 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 again, nothing new under the sun. We are no different because of the pigment of our color of our skin it makes no difference whatsoever. We have the blood, and where is the life again? In the blood. God has called our attention to the blood, not to the pigment of the skin, not to any of this other stuff. It's very clear here. You see? And it says the whole earth was populated, no remnant. And as we read next week, we'll we'll go into the table of nations in chapter 10. And we're going to read about all that. Let's look at verse 20. It said, And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. That tells us Noah was never a farmer before. There was none of that. He, He didn't do that. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham the father came and saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. So clearly something has changed. I mean, something dramatic happened here. I mean, we're going to see the sin here of Ham, Noah's son. Okay, this is, this is the first, you might say, the second big sin. What was the first big sin we saw before this? The drunkenness, right? We see that here. So the reset button was hit, but the imagination of, of man's heart is evil from its youth. That's what he said here in chapter 8, verse 21, right? We already read that. And so, believers in Jesus Christ, what? We're, we're not under the law, but we still have a battle that wages on in the spiritual realm. And it says here he drank of the wine and was drunk. Again, this is the first mention of all drunkenness we have in all of the Bible. The first place we see it. So, what's God have to say about this? Because I know there's somebody out there tonight that's going, "Well, are we allowed to drink? Are we not allowed to drink? Can we have wine? Can we have a beer? What's going on?" Well, it's different for different people and different. And we're going to go through that. We'll look at it with the, the remaining time we have here. It's you know, if you go through and look at this, clearly Noah didn't just have a glass of wine. Noah did something else. He was drunk. He was intoxicated to the point of where he passed out or he slept. Did you see there's a very clear difference here than just having a glass of wine. He didn't just have a glass of wine. Noah was out, right? He, he was drunk. And, you know, we look at this and we see the sinfulness and the shame and sort of the foolishness of this drunkenness. The Proverbs, if you think of Proverbs chapter 20 verse 1 or chapter 23 verses 29 through 33 say, wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Who has woe? Woe, and who has sorrow? Who has contention? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine, do you not look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly? At last it bites like a serpent." and stings like a viper your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things wow that's what god has to say and then you look at ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 and he says and do not be drunk with wine in which is dispensation but be filled with the spirit so now we're seeing a contrast god begins to give us a contrast in ephesians 5:18 where he's saying that the work of the spirit right competes with the effectiveness of drunkenness. In other words, if you're drunk and you're doing, you're, you're going to be consumed by something, it's either going to be the drunkenness or it's going to be the Holy Spirit. But it, it, it contrasts the effects of the Holy Spirit by the drunkenness. I mean, I, I've said it this way, and I think Pastor Chuck said it this way one time. He says alcohol is a depressant, right? I think most of us understand that. We took health class at one time or another. Alcohol, it does what? It relaxes people kind of depresses their self-control, right? Their wisdom, their balance, their judgment. Now, the Holy Spirit is the exact opposite effect, doesn't it? What is the Holy Spirit? It's a stimulant. It's a stimulant. It influences every aspect of being better and more perfect performance. So what happens if you take a depressant and you add a stimulant? What happens? They counteract each other. Do you see that? If you take a depressant and you take a stimulant, what, what are it really doing? You're counteracting it. You see, you're going to be controlled by something, right? You're going to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. You're going to be led by the Holy Spirit, by God. Or, you're going to allow that alcohol, the drugs, the whole thing to consume you. Because that's what it does. And it says, and he became uncovered in his tent, verse 21. Now, I'm not sure... We don't know. Scholars have said, is there some type of an abuse that went on here? Because the interesting in the, in the Hebrew, the way the language brings it together, that th- maybe this is a little bit more than mockery, what his son did, because he went in and his son was older. We don't know, and we don't want to speculate. I don't know, but maybe when one of his relatives were also there. Maybe it was just the fear fact that he was looking up on his dad's nakedness, which would have been inappropriate. We, we really don't know all the details, but whatever it was, you know, the phrase here becoming uncovered, if you look at it throughout scripture, for example, Leviticus chapter 18, verses six through ten, it does connote association of sexual relations or or morality that way. If you look at it in context of the scripture, you be Bereans. You be Bereans on this. No matter what, it's it's disgusting and surprising. Um but not, I should say, not terribly surprising, because when you, when you look at some of the statistics, many people who get drunk becomes victims of abuse, sexual and otherwise. 75% of the men and 55% of the women involved in date rape situations, and this is according to latest statistics, were drinking or taking drugs just before the attack. The FBI says that 50% of all rapes, 50% of all rapes involve alcohol. That's a staggering number. In the United States, 88,000 people die each year in alcohol-related deaths, 88,000. While alcohol abuse costs the nation hundreds of billions of dollars each year. Excessive drinking was responsible in 2000, between 2014 and 2016, responsible for one in 10 deaths, 10%, among working age adults aged 20 through 64 years of age. This comes all right from this this website. You can go look at it. The average American television viewer sees over 100,000 beer or ads or commercials by the time they're 18. Think of the football games. How many come on during a football game, right? I like to put it this way. 1 Timothy 3 is very clear. Overseers, elders, leadership in the church. You're not to be given to any wine. Those teaching the word of God whether it's in a youth ministry to children, you're not to be given to any wine. There is no drinking. At Calvary Chapel, that's what we do. There is no drinking. If you're serving in children's ministry, you don't drink alcohol. Not at home, not one glass, not at all. If you're a lay person and you're not serving in the church and you go to a deacon or deaconess role, which is also part of 1 Timothy 3, and you read down in the scripture there, it says some, not to be given to some, right? So you're allowed to have some, you can have a glass of wine, and it's not anything wrong with that, biblically or scripturally. But if you are a leader or an overseer in the church, a pastor, if you hear this on the radio, you are not to be given unto wine. 1 Timothy 3, there's nothing you can say or do about that. It's very clear in the scripture. Well, you're going to say, but Jesus Christ had wine, but he wasn't drunk. He wasn't a wine-biver. And just because God can do something, does that mean I can do it? If he gave me his provision in Timothy not to do it, right? Well, Pastor, what do you mean? Well, I have children. And there's times I go to my children and I say, don't do that. But Dad, I just saw you take that muffin. That was a second muffin you took. You're not supposed to have another cookie like that. (laughs) Don't do that. You're not supposed to do that. Why? Because I'm older, right? One cookie, you're you're younger. Two cookies like that and all that chocolate, it could make you sick to your stomach. You might throw up, right? But Dad, why do I... Because I said so, right? And and that's got to be good enough. Well, when our Father in Heaven tells us something... Because he says so, do we rebel against that? Are we like that little kid going, I'm going to take that cookie anyway, right? we got to make a choice. We either believe Scripture and we follow all of Scripture, or we pick and choose what we want, and we know where that ends. Going back to the book of Judges, they did what was right in their own eyes. And I know there's some people tonight, this is the first time you might be hearing this. Go back and be Bereans and study this. Jesus Christ was never a wine-bibber. He was never drunk. He was never like that. We never saw anything like that, and when we did see the one time where Paul, as a matter of fact, told Timothy, have a little wine, to do what? It was medicinal. He says, to settle your stomach, to kill the bacteria, because there's also people that try to say, well, the alcohol back then wasn't the same alcohol content. Well, really? Tell that to Noah, because Noah just planted a vineyard, drank from the vineyard, got drunk and passed out. That tells me that the wine was the same as it is today. Alcohol is alcohol. You know? So you, you do with that as the Lord leads. That's between you and God. There is no trip on you here on that. You are under the grace of Christ. You do what the Lord shows you. But I will say this. If you are in leadership, or you're an elder, or you're in a teaching ministry in this church, you know where we stand on this. There is no alcohol. You don't drink alcohol. There is no alcohol in teaching ministry. There's no alcohol for our worship leaders. We want the Holy Spirit. And we want to be led by Jesus Christ. Amen? So, I mean... It says, so they saw the neck of his fathers, and other think maybe this was Hamson only, but maybe we see his son Canaan brought into this here. And literally in the Hebrew there, in verse 22, when you look at this, if you're taking notes, the idea it connotes here in the Hebrew, if you look at it, is told with delight. You see that? It was told with delight. So when it says he's going back there in verse 22, and Ham the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, what that's connoting in the Hebrew, if you read the original language, it's telling him with delight, kind of like mocking him and laughing on that situation. And, you know, I think that's a pretty, pretty harsh thing here. So he, deter- he was determined to mock his father and undermine his authority. If you'll hang with me for a few more minutes, we'll just close out this entire passage. If you can do that with me, please. So Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. That also gives the idea in the language, done to him. There's something just off here. And I, I don't know. You have to be Bereans. There's something off here. But um, it says, so Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, curse be as Canaan or is Canaan. Now, he's not saying curse his son because sometimes people get into the generational curses. Generational curse is real? No, this is not what this is saying and I'll explain it to you in a minute in the Hebrew here. What this is also saying here is he says, and when he says Canaan, who is that talking about? That's Ham's son. That's what? Egypt, the Samaritans, China, Asia. That, that's that people group that that would have represented in Canaan. He's not just talking about Canaan, but he's talking about the people which, oh by the way, Joshua, When we read about Joshua, when we get there, he went through and what did he do? He destroyed much of that land through God's help through the armies and the conquering there, right? So it says, a servant to servants, he shall be to his, um, excuse me, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. That's where we get the Semitic line. So you got the Jews and the Arabs, they're from the Semitic line. And may Canaan be his servants. May God enlarge Japheth. What is Japheth? That's the European line. That's where we get the Europeans. And may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his sermon. So when we look at this here, he said, look, your younger son, and look what he had done to him. So again, something, maybe his grandson saw his name. We're not sure. Cursed be Canaan. It seems strange that, again, if Ham had sinned against Noah, that Canaan, his son, Ham's son, would be cursed that way because we we don't see that in, in Scripture. And perhaps Canaan was involved in the sin maybe, but, but again, it's not mentioned in the text either. Context is king. Context is king here. I think more than likely the strongest, if <laughs> you think about this in context, fathers in here. If I told you your son, and I was prophesying, because this is prophetic and this is exactly what happened, as a matter of fact, very prophetic. If I told you, you're a father, you had sinned, and I said, listen, because of what you've done in your wickedness, your son is going to follow right after your footsteps. He's going to be just like you because more is caught than is taught verbally. So he's going to watch you and he's going to see what you're like and he's going to grow up just like that. And he's going to go off and he's going to be just as well. And he's prophesying him as Ham. How are you feeling right now? Are you crushed? Because that's your boy. You love him. You, you don't want that. You want a good. I don't know there's a father that doesn't want a good life for his son that way. And here's the the prophecy that's being laid out for him that way. I think that's what it was. It was a strong punishment against Ham, and it was revealed prophetically to the destiny of his son Canaan. We can know also that God is not punishing the son Canaan for the sin of his father Ham, because this goes against the heart of God, the justice of God. If you're taking notes, and we're out of time, so we don't have time to go there, but go to Ezekiel chapter 18. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 18. I'm going to go there. (laughs) I'm going to go there. I know we're out of time. But this is so important. I I don't want anybody walking out of here believing in generational curses. What do you mean when you use the proverb concerning the land of Israel saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. In other words, Because of the sin of the father, the sin of the son is to pay the price, the sin of the father. Because the sour grapes, in other words, the stain, the remnant, isn't going to last. That's what it's saying here. So through Noah's prophecy, God tells Ham that this is going to happen to his son. And it says, may Canaan be his servant. Again, in earlier generations. Wickedness and prejudice came from this because, believe it or not, people you talk about slavery and, and misreading context, people have come back and you know what they've said? They said, Well, this is why slavery is okay. <sighs> you talk about a total misread of the Bible. One, this isn't, you know, you want to talk about African or Africa, this isn't even talk about Africa. I mean, that's not even used to justify the, the Canaanites. They're not even part of that. They were mostly, like I said, judged and conquered by Joshua on his way to the promised land. So it just shows you the ignorance of of somebody that tries to read the Bible and pretext it to mean something they want it to, to hurt people, to harm people. You know, it's that indoctrination. I think of Hitler and the Nazis and and all the indoctrination that he's done. I think of the progressive movement today that we see. It's that indoctrination that we're seeing in our world today, pushing that next generation, telling them this is right, this is the way, you know, it's, it's demonic. In verse 28, it says, "And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died." So, I mean, you think about Noah, a remarkable man, and served God, you know, in his own generation. Yet, I think if we're all, you know, paying attention here tonight, and we're we're not nodding off, I think, I think we'd have to agree that his last years don't match the glory of his first years, does it? And I think Paul was very clearly in Second Timothy chapter four verse six, and I'll, I will close with this last passage here. This time I mean it. <laughs> I thought I meant it before too. All right, Lord just keeps going. I just I obey. Second Timothy chapter four verse six. He says, "For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith." Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous dud, will give to me on that day, and not me only, but to all those who have loved his appearing. We're to finish the race strong, Christian.